would invite you to turn with me this evening to Psalm 106 as we continue through the Psalter, as we come to the end of Book 4 in the Psalter. And let us stand as we give our attention to the reading and to the hearing of God's holy word. Psalm 106. Praise ye the Lord. O give thanks unto the Lord, for he is good, for his mercy endureth forever. Who can utter the mighty acts of the Lord? Who can show forth all his praise? Blessed are they that keep judgment, and he that doeth righteousness at all times. Remember me, O Lord, with the favor that thou bearest unto thy people. O visit me with thy salvation, that I may see the good of thy chosen, that I may rejoice in the gladness of thy nation, that I may glory with thine inheritance. We have sinned with our fathers. We have committed iniquity. We have done wickedly. Our fathers understood not thy wonders in Egypt. They remembered not the multitude of thy mercies, but provoked him at the sea, even at the Red Sea. Nevertheless, he saved them for his name's sake, that he might make his mighty power to be known. He rebuked the Red Sea also, and it was dried up. So he led them through the depths, as through the wilderness. And he saved them from the hand of him that hated them and redeemed them from the hand of the enemy. And the waters covered their enemies. There was not one of them left. Then believed they his words. They sang his praise. They soon forgot his works. They waited not for his counsel, but lusted exceedingly in the wilderness and tempted God in the desert. And he gave them their request, but sent leanness into their soul. They envied Moses also in the camp, and Aaron, the saint of the Lord. The earth opened and swallowed up Dathan, and covered the company of Abiram. And a fire was kindled in their company. The flame burned up the wicked. They made a calf in Horeb, and worshipped the molten image. Thus they exchanged their glory into the similitude of an ox that eateth grass. They forgot God their Savior, which had done great things in Egypt, wondrous works in the land of Ham, and terrible things by the Red Sea. Therefore he said that he would destroy them had not Moses his chosen stood before him in the breach to turn away his wrath, lest he should destroy them. Yea, they despised the pleasant land. They believed not his word, but murmured in their tents and hearkened not unto the voice of the Lord. Therefore he lifted up his hand against them to overthrow them in the wilderness, to overthrow their seed also among the nations and to scatter them in the lands. They joined themselves also unto Baal Peor and ate the sacrifices of the dead. Thus they provoked him to anger with their inventions, and the plague break in upon them. Then stood up Phineas and ex- executed judgment, and so the plague was stayed. And that was counted unto him for righteousness unto all generations forevermore. They angered him also at the waters of strife, so that it went ill with Moses for their sake. 
because they provoked his spirit so that he spake unadvisedly with his lips. They did not destroy the nations concerning whom the Lord commanded them, but were mingled among the heathen and learned their ways, and they served their idols, which were a snare unto them. Yea, they sacrificed their sons and their daughters unto devils, and shed innocent blood, even the blood of their sons and their daughters, whom they sacrificed unto the idols of Canaan. The land was polluted with blood. They were defiled with their own works, and went whoring with their own inventions. Therefore was the wrath of the Lord kindled against his people, insomuch that he abhorred his own inheritance. He gave them into the hand of the heathen. They that hated them ruled over them. Their enemies also oppressed them, and they were brought into subjection under under their hand. Many times did he deliver them, but they provoked him with their counsel, and were brought low for their iniquity. Nevertheless, he regarded their affliction when he heard their cry, and he remembered for them his covenant, and repented according to the multitude of his mercies. He made them also to be pitied of all those that carried them captive. captives. Save us, O Lord our God, and gather us from among the heathen to give thanks unto thy holy name and to triumph in thy praise. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel from everlasting to everlasting. And let all the people say, Amen. Praise ye the Lord. And this is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. O Lord our God, we do give thee thanks that we have thy word which is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. And we would pray that as we come to this passage, that you would give us understanding, that you would lead us in paths of righteousness for your namesake. We pray that we might receive instruction from this passage, that we might go forth to live as thy people. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing in thy sight. O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. Well, Psalm 106 is, to put it mildly, a ghastly picture of Israel's history. It is not one that we like to think about, as you heard as, we were, as I was reading through the passage, a, a horrible horrible picture of Israel. And yet here in this passage of Scripture, we have instruction. We receive instruction as to how we as God's people might avoid similar sins and how we might invoke the presence of God and how we might plead for the mercy of the Lord. Because apart from the mercy and grace of the Lord Jesus Christ... We are all left to our own ruin and device, devices. As we've seen so far in Psalm 105 and now here in 106, both of these passages are an historical account of God's sovereignty over his covenant people. These two psalms, and we looked at this last time, but these two psalms are linked in three ways. Opening call to give thanks, praise ye the Lord. And then secondly, they both quote from David's psalm 
in 1 Chronicles 16, celebrating the bringing up of the ark to Jerusalem. And thirdly, they form that hallelujah triad, Psalms 104, 105, 106. This is why we believe, even though there is no title to Psalm 105 and 106, most um, orthodox commentators, and myself included, would believe that David is the author. Because David is the one who penned it in 1 Chronicles 16. And so most likely it is David, because the occasion is the bringing up of the Ark of the Lord. And you remember the Ark of the Lord? It was that box It wasn't just the presence of God that surrounded that box, but on top of that box was a a lid where the blood sacrifices were sprinkled on behalf of the people. And so there was the mercy seat. And that is a picture, a glorious picture for us, that Christ Jesus is our mercy seat, that his blood has been sprinkled upon us. What a beautiful picture to come away with with our instruction earlier on the sacraments, particularly baptism, that we use the application of sprinkling because I think it's a greater picture of the sprinkling of the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ upon our homes, upon our children. And so here we find in this historic psalm a picture. We saw in Psalm 105 a review of Israel's history of how God had been faithful to them. But we see a contrast in Psalm 106. 105 showed the faithfulness of God, particularly in the experiences of Joseph, in the experiences of Moses, and the conquest under Joshua. But in Psalm 106, we see the history, not only of Israel, but we see the unfaithfulness of Israel, which leads to her confession of sin and pleading for mercy. But in Psalm 106, there is a note of God's faithfulness. Even in the sin of Israel, we see the faithfulness of God, and the psalmist concludes the psalm with God's faithfulness. And so as we begin this psalm, we begin there in We have three points that I want to address this evening. And that is the first point is a call to praise in verses 1 through 5. The second point is a record of failure in verses 6 through 46. And then verses 47 and 48 is a prayer for mercy and praise unto this God who is faithful to the terms of his covenant And so the psalmist breaks forth in praise. It begins with that hallelujah. Here is what I call the hallelujah chorus. Much better than Handel, because it's inspired of God. And so here he begins with that hallelujah chorus. Hallelujah, oh praise ye the Lord. Now Psalm 105 began with this give thanks unto the Lord, and it ended... In verse 47, with praise ye the Lord or hallelujah. But in Psalm 106, it begins with hallelujah and it ends with hallelujah. And so what a note to end on. Considering all of the failure of Israel. To consider all of the sins that Israel committed. 
What a wonderful note to end on. Because the psalmist begins giving thanks unto the Lord for what reason? For His goodness. For His mercy. Verse 1 is a wonderful call to the church to begin with praise, even in the midst of our sin. Our sin is no reason for us not to give praise. Because the fact that God preserves us and keeps us, the fact that God preserves His elect, is a call for praise. And so he says, Give thanks unto this God, for He is good. It's a wonderful reminder as we look at Psalm 106, because it teaches us to remember the past as a guide for the present. We look at history as a guide, as a way that we might not repeat our sins. And here Israel's history is a reminder not only of a guide to keep us from sin, but of also the faithfulness of God. But notice as the psalmist begins, he speaks of the fact that God is good and He is merciful. That mercy there that he speaks of is that covenant faithfulness. That mercy is always connected to His covenant. God's mercy is not something that He just freely gives to everyone and anyone. But God's mercy is always connected to His covenant. And we must remember that. Apart from that covenant of grace, there is no mercy. Under the covenant of works in the garden, guess what? There was no mercy. There was no grace. They were called to obey God. And upon the penalty of not obeying Him, what would happen? Death. And it did come. It came to the entire race. Contrary to what one um, so-called Reformed writer is teaching today, death came upon the race the moment Adam sinned. And so we see that God's mercy is always connected to His faithfulness. In spite of our sin, in spite of Israel's sin, God's mercy endures for how long? Forever. God's love and favor towards His people is not contingent upon their faithfulness. It is contingent upon His mercy. If His mercy endures forever, God's covenant and the promises He swore in that covenant will not fail. We need to realize that because of God's loyalty and because of God's mercy, He cannot fail. And so it endures forever. It endures to every generation. This is the Abrahamic promise. To thy seed I will bless the nations of the earth. And so here we see the faithfulness of our God. And so he calls us to praise. It's a beautiful reminder to us that we are always called to publicly declare the goodness, the mercy of the Lord. To remind us particularly, and this is a deterrent for sin, that God is good, that God is faithful to us. And then the psalmist asks that question, two questions he asks Who can utter the mighty acts of the Lord? And who can show forth all his praise? That is the question that he wants us to ponder. 
It's a question that calls for us to meditate upon it and to think about who can utter the mighty acts of the Lord. It's not a question that we just say, well, we can. Or who can show forth his praise? Well, we can do that. It's not one of those questions that demands an immediate response. But really, it's to ponder who can utter the mighty acts of the Lord. You saw that in Psalm 105. You see this in 106. You see that his mighty acts are things that we cannot even begin to ponder. All that the Lord does, all that the Lord does regarding his salvation and his judgments cannot be fully fathomed. And I think that's the, the thought here in the psalm. Who can utter them? Who can show forth all his praise? It's why we will give praise to our God for eternity. Praise does not last for this end of the age in which the church age is the picture, but that praise of God will continue into eternity. And so who can show forth all his praise? But then he reminds us there in verse 3 that those who are blessed are those who keep his judgment and do what is right. The Psalter begins with Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who what? Walks not in the counsel of the ungodly. The man is blessed who does not sit in the way of sinners, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and he meditates upon it day and night. So here we see that this man is blessed who keeps the judgments of God. This man is blessed who does righteousness when? When I feel like it? Just on the Lord's day? No, he does righteousness at all times. And so we see here in this beatitude a glance at the fact that even though Israel failed, even though we fail, we have an obligation to keep the judgments of God and to remember all that he has done and to do what is right. How can anyone do right? How can clean come out of something that's unclean? The heart is desperately wicked, and who can know it? That's why we need the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, because we cannot be faithful. We cannot do righteousness apart from the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so here we find... The psalmist saying, remember me, O Lord, with favor. We are to set our mind and our heart upon God's favor. We are to give attention to it. We remember that God has shown favor unto his people. Notice here what the psalmist is saying. O Lord, remember the favor that thou bearest unto thy people. What people? Israel, Israel who went a-whoring after their own inventions. Israel who sacrificed their sons and daughters. Israel who angered God. That is the favor that he speaks of. It is that 
favor because of his covenant that he bears unto his people. And then the psalmist says, Oh, visit me. Oh, come to me. Give thy salvation unto me. And so there's really a a call for us not only to give praise to God, but to see this as a means by which we seek the face of God, particularly when we sin. We might not fall short of His glory. Verse 5, he finishes this call to praise by saying that I may see the good of thy chosen and that I may rejoice in the gladness of thy nation, that I may glory, that I may glory with thine inheritance. Here the, the desire of the psalmist, David, is to see the good of God's people. Here's a question for us to consider and ponder. Do we desire the good of God's people? Do we desire the good of each other? Oh, how often we can complain. Oh, how often, like Israel, we can speak against God's anointed ones. How often we can speak against one another. And yet we are called to see the good of thy chosen, not because of any merit in us, but because we are covered in the righteousness of Christ, that I may rejoice in the gladness of thy nation. Blessed is the nation whose people is the Lord their God. The nation of Israel, the nation that worships God in spirit and in truth, that I may glory with thine inheritance. Oh, how David identifies with Israel. How David identifies with that nation. How David identifies with the inheritance of God. And that is our identity. Even in this world when people have all kinds of strange identities, we have one identity. And that is we are numbered among God's inheritance. Our children are part of that inheritance. And so the psalmist calls us to praise, to give worship to this God. And so here we remember in the second point a record of Israel's failure. The history of Israel's sins against the Lord is not a despisement against them. The record of the sins of the church in every age is not a reason for despising the church. It's an excuse in our day for people, well, see the corruption of the church. See that pastor failed. See that Christian failed. And people look at that as a reason to despise. But you know what? It's a reminder to us that we must see the corruption of our own hearts. It's easy to point the finger and say, oh, look at that person. How wicked and corrupt they are. But this record of Israel's failure is really a testimony to the fact that every one of us have a wicked and corrupt heart. And so this is an occasion for us to consider the corruption of our own hearts And then to plead for the mercy of the Lord our God. This call to remember their failures is a great lesson for us. 
The psalmist begins in verse 6 with this prayer that is often uttered, even the prayer that Isaiah uttered. We have sinned with our fathers. Notice the change in the pronoun. He goes from I, now he goes to we. We have sinned with our fathers. We have committed iniquity. We have done wickedly. David is including him in that. David is including his generation. David, the man who committed adultery with Bathsheba. David, who covered up his adultery by murdering the woman's husband in the line of battle. David, who was deceptive and lied. This man recognizes the sins of his own nation, of his own generation, and identifies with the sins of his fathers. The sacred text bears witness to the fact that the sins of the fathers are visited where? Upon the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. It's showing mercy unto thousands who love me and keep my commandments. So here in verse 6, the psalmist identifies with his generation. He bears witness to the fact that his generation is just as corrupt and wicked as those generations of which is recorded in Psalm 106. And so we have sinned. We have committed iniquity. There's a, there's a sense in which when we call upon the Lord that we should always be identifying with our own sin. We see that in our, our, our um, invocation on the Lord's Day, an acknowledgement of our own sins. But here, he begins to recall all of the sins that Israel committed. And he lists eight different sins committed. That, div- that provoked the displeasure of God, that provoked His anger. There are three places that He records in this record that are the occasions for the sin of Israel. Verses 6 through 12, Israel sinned in Egypt. Verses 13 through 33, Israel sinned in the wilderness. And then verses 34 through 43, Israel sinned in Canaan. In all three of those places, we see the great tragedy of Israel's sin and their failure to remain faithful to what God had called them to be. And so when you look at this record, there's a reminder that they did not maintain their faithfulness to God. So he begins there in verse 7 with the first sin in that record. Verses 7 through 12. That sin that took place in Egypt, that sin that took place at the Red Sea, and that is the failure or the sin of unbelief. We see here in verse 7, Our fathers did not understand thy wonders in Egypt. 
Here's the great sin of unbelief. Here's the sin of unbelief even in the church. We do not understand the wonders of God. Oh, great. We've lost a family. Oh, great. This has happened. Oh, great. That's happened. And we begin to think about all of these things that happen, and yet we never fail to understand that we don't under see the wonders of God in our midst. Those wonders were not just for ancient Israel. Those wonders continue to unfold among the people of God in every age. But our fathers understood them not. You know, you would think that if God sent Moses and Aaron into Egypt, and if they showed all of those signs and wonders, the water turned to blood and gnats and all kinds of swarming flies covered the land, you would think that would be enough to get their attention. But they didn't understand it. They didn't remember the multitude of his mercies. The verse 7 at the end says they provoked him at the sea, even at the Red Sea. There as they came to the Red Sea, they're thinking, great. The Lord has just delivered us out of the affliction of Egypt. He has just turned that whole nation upside down. He brought death to the firstborn. And now we come to the Red Sea and there's no place to go. The armies of Egypt are coming against us. And we have nowhere to hide. That's what they're thinking. They didn't think about the fact that God had showed wonders, that God had shown mercy time after time. And so they provoked him at the sea because they failed to understand that God would provide a way. That God always provides a way of escape. He is the rock and refuge for his people. But notice verse 8. Nevertheless, he saved them, not because he thought, well, they failed again, I'll just save them one more time. No, he saved them for his name's sake. He saved them that he might receive the glory. And all that God does, all of the works and wonders He does, is not for us to bask in. Not for us to, oh, look at those glory days of the past. God does that to show His power. God does that to show and demonstrate that He alone is God. And so as they are standing there at the Red Sea and Israel's pursuing, or Egypt is pursuing them, they stand there. And immediately God parts the waters. It's a beautiful picture. You can see it. God literally pulls back the waters of the Red Sea like a curtain. And then the dry land is there and Israel walks across. Not thinking anything other than their continued unbelief. And so God rebuked the Red Sea. Jesus rebuked the wind and the storm on the Sea of Galilee. And as he did it, he dried it up. And he led them through the depths as through the wilderness. And verse 10 says, And he saved them from the hand of him that hated them. They saved him from Pharaoh. 
They saved him for that, from that heathen king and redeemed them from the hand of the enemies. The water covered the enemies. Here's a beautiful picture of God's judgment. That in the waters of the Red Sea, God drowned all of his enemies and there was not one left. Guess what? Verse 12 says, Then, then they believed the works. Then they believed his words. And what did they do? They with Miriam and Moses sang that new song. That God has triumphed gloriously. The horse and the rider have been cast into the sea. So now they finally understand for a time. So that Red Sea experience was not enough. They fell in their unbelief. But we come to verse 13 through 15, and we see the second sin of Israel, and that is the lust that they had for the things that are carnal. They were a discontented people. Verse 14 says, or verse 13 says, they soon forgot his works. Oh, how quickly we, are, we easily forget. They forgot his works and waited not for his counsel. I don't know how long transpired between them coming across the Red Sea and this next incident in the life of Israel. But here... It says they forgot his works, they did not seek his counsel, they lusted exceedingly in the wilderness and tempted God. So now they've come out of Egypt, now they're in the wilderness, and they sin in the wilderness because they were looking for bread. They complained, you've given us bread, we can't just live on bread alone. And so God gave them manna, or gave them quail. And they complained about that. Quail, third day, fourth day, fifth day. Notice the discontent. Notice the fact that they are not a thankful people. But they have more demands for the things that do not satisfy. They lust for the carnal. They lust for those things that cannot satisfy. Notice verse 15. He gave them their request, but sent leanness into their soul. He gave them what they wanted. He gave them all that they needed in the wilderness. They complained. But notice, they were filled. They were fat. They were happy. But he sent leanness into their soul. They were starving spiritually, but hey... Their bellies were filled. Wonderful picture of that, that um, scene in the Gospels of Jesus feeding the crowd of 5,000 people with a few loaves of fish and, and bread. And how the people went away filled. But the question is, did they go away satisfied? We live in a day when we depend upon the federal government to bail out everyone 
So in California now, everyone who is uh, who is of uh, a particular race of people are going to be getting a check from the government, from from the state of of California. People look for the federal government to feed them. But you know what? It doesn't satisfy their souls. And the question is here, as we we think about this, because here's a picture of Israel, but do we lust for the carnal? Do we lust for those things that cannot satisfy? Do we have that leanness in our souls? We may be fat, we may have everything at at our table, yet our souls are empty. This is the picture of Israel. And so they they fell in their unbelief. They were discontent with the things that God gave them. How often we can be discontent. Oh, I don't like this. I don't like this. I don't like this. We complain. We murmur. That was the case with Israel. But verses 16 through 18, we see a third sin that was committed there in the wilderness. Verses 16 through 18 say they envied Moses in the camp and Aaron, the saint of the Lord, the earth swallowed up Dathan and they covered the company of Abiram. And so here we see that they envied, they complained against Moses. You can go back and look at that. Time does not allow us to look at number 16, but there in that account... They were swallowed up because they were envious. The self-righteous attacks on Moses upon his leadership is so typical of that generation. They Fire was kindled in their company. The flame burned up the wicked. So here's a picture of their third sin, that they were jealous for... Moses, they complained against Moses. Men, verse 18, perished by fire. And the third sin, Korah. Fire was kindled in their company. The flame burned up the wicked. It blazed up. Number 16, verse 35. And so here we see that the men perished by the fire shows that the party of Korah, the religious wing, revolted. And so we see that there's a reckoning here. There's no mention of their leader, but certainly they, they sinned. There in verses 19 through 23, we see another sin that Israel committed. And that is the sin of idolatry. They made a calf in Horeb and worshipped the molten image. Moses went up to the mountain to receive the law of God. The people are standing there at the bottom of the mountain. Moses comes back down with the law of God. What are the people doing? They're worshipping God. Oh, they are? Yeah. They're worshipping God with a golden calf. And so they violated the second commandment by making a graven image which they might worship. And in worshiping that molten image that had no ears, no eyes, no understanding, 
They did what Paul says in Romans chapter 1. They changed the glory of God into that of an ox that eateth grass. That calf in Horeb in Exodus chapter 32, they exchanged the glory of God. And so here is the picture of their idolatry. It was an exchange. They wanted to exchange the true worship of God for that which is false. And that is the sin of every age. That is the sin of the church in our age. We don't want to worship the way our Puritan fathers did. That's boring. So we want the band. We want the, the orchestra. You know, sometimes people think that the orchestra is better than the band. They're both the same. They both stimulate our emotions. The thing that stimulates our emotions should be the singing of the Psalter. Those things should stimulate our emotions. But as they exchanged the glory of God into an ox, as they violated the second commandment, they forgot God their Savior, which did great things in Egypt. Again, they, they forgot God in the midst of all of his mighty wonders, and then they believed his word and sang and praised him, and then they forgot and here again, we see they forgot God their Savior in verse 21. They forgot what he had done in Egypt. Isn't that that cycle we see in the judges? Sin, servitude, sorrow, and supplication. It repeats itself. This is what happens in Israel's history. And so, he says he would destroy them. He would destroy them had not Moses, his chosen, stood before them in the breach. Here's a wonderful picture of the redemptive work of Christ as the new Moses who is typified in the book of Hebrews. He is the one who stands between us and God. He is our mediator. And for that reason alone, God will not destroy us. If we are in Christ, if we are identified with him, Christ stands as our mediator, as our representative. Therefore, wrath of God is turned away just as it was for Israel. In that old covenant administration, even in the administration under Moses, it was not a covenant of works. Don't be fooled by that. It was a covenant of grace. Moses, as, as the mediator, is mediating grace on behalf of the people who should have been wiped out in an instant. But the fifth sin in time doesn't allow us to go on, but I'd like for you to think about these on your own and, and meditate more upon them. But verses 24 through 27, the fifth sin here in the report of the spies is the drawing back. They were to march into Canaan. Yet they refuse. Let us go back to Egypt. We don't want to go into Canaan. That's a life of affliction. They wanted the pleasant land. They wanted the good. How often we draw back. We want this. We want that. But we see also in the sixth sin, verses 28 through 31, the apostasy of Israel. 28 through 31, they're still in the wilderness. 
They joined themselves unto Baal, Peor, and ate the sacrifices of the dead. Numbers 25 records this. Amazing, isn't it? That God's covenant people had reduced themselves to eating the sacrifices of the dead. Well, that's what pagans do. Isn't that what they did when they committed apostasy? Verses 28 through 31, they, they played the harlot with the daughters of Moab. Here is spiritual harlotry. They yoked themselves to Baal Peor. They sacrificed their dead and ate the sacrifices. Verse 29 says the anger of God was provoked against their inventions. Scalvin says the idle factory lies within the heart of every man. Always looking for a new invention. Always looking for something new. We don't like the tried and true. So we like to invent. And that's what Israel did. They invented. But verse 32 through 33 at the waters of Meribah. We see here that they angered him at those waters of strife so that it went ill with Moses for their sakes. It went poorly for Israel. Numbers chapter 20 records this. There in that sin committed there at the waters of Meribah, they provoked God. Moses struck the rock in anger. Moses sinned against God. He was a type of Christ, but the Lord Jesus Christ had a perfect righteousness, which Moses didn't have. And yet Moses paid the price for his anger, for striking the rock. Verses 34 through 39, we see the eighth sin that Israel had committed. And that is, they gave themselves again to idolatry. They turned to paganism. They turned to the gods of the age. Verse 34, they did not destroy the nations concerning whom the Lord commanded them. They were mingled among the heathen. They learned the ways of the heathen. They served their idols which were a snare to them. They sacrificed their sons and daughters unto devils. Nothing new under the sun. They shed innocent blood, even the blood of their sons and daughters, whom they sacrificed unto the idols of Canaan. How could Israel do this? How could they allow their land to be polluted with blood? They were defiled with their own works. They went about whoring with their own inventions. Here's the tragedy of Israel. I think this is really the summation of all of Israel's sins. They went looking after other gods. Okay, we've tried this God. We've tried this God. We've tried this God. We've tried this God. We've tried the ways of this nation. We've tried the ways of this nation. So let's try this. It's interesting, they were always looking for their own inventions. 
This is where they fell into idolatry. But here we come to verses 40 through 46. And at the end of all of the sins they committed, the Lord's wrath was kindled against His people. And so in verse 40 through 46, we see a summation of God's judgment. Many times, verse 43, He delivered them. Many times. Not once, not twice, but numerous times God delivered them. And they provoked Him with their counsel and were brought low for their iniquity. Nevertheless, God heard their cry. God regarded their affliction. And here is the beauty of the covenant of grace, even under the old administration. He remembered for them His covenant. He remembered for them. He remembered for Israel. He remembered for His possession. He remembered for those who were His. He remembered His covenant. Oh, does God forget? Does He have... Is he absent-minded? Of course not. The fact that God remembers shows that he doesn't ever forget. But in remembering his covenant, this is the only way he can respond to Israel in the midst of their sin. And so he repented according to the multitude of his mercies. And then the psalmist concludes in his prayer for mercy and praise. Verse 47, he prays for mercy. Save us, O Lord God, and gather us from among the heathen, so that we might give thanks unto thee, that we might triumph in thy praise. And then he closes with this declaration of praise. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. And let all the people say, Amen, Hallelujah, or praise the Lord. Beautiful summary in the midst of, of that horrible, tragic account of Israel's history. David comes to the conclusion that he needs for himself and for his nation, for his people, the mercy of God. He needs the favor of God to deliver them from among the heathen. And then he triumphs in glorious praise. His salvation, his mercy, his covenant faithfulness always moves his people to give praise. It is the reason for why we give praise unto our God. How can we not see the mercy of God in this? What do we need from God? To avoid the sins of our own nation, of our own history. God must provide salvation for us. Not just some outward superficial religion. A religion that is of both mind and heart and will. Rather than forgetting God as Israel did. We need God to give us a knowledge of Him. They had the prophets. We have our pastors. Oh, we're not, we're not quite 
like this guy. So we're going to turn to this guy. You know, this guy sounds really good. And so we go after those that will tickle our ears. We go after those who, who provide what we want. But how we need the salvation of the Lord, how we need to remember that we can so easily forget. Friends, the sins of Israel are repeated so often in the life of the church. We fall into idolatry each day. We fall into unbelief. We fall into this trap of never being satisfied. Always looking for something more. And yet God calls us as His people to remember His mercies. First of all, to remember His mercies and then to remember that we are wicked and sinful people. And so therefore our sin should move us to pray, O God, have mercy upon us. O God, save us. O God, gather us from the nations. We might give thanks unto Thee. We live in a nation that is polluted with blood. We live in a nation that gives its unborn to the butcher mill. We live in a nation that serves idols. And for the church, oftentimes our idols is to, to look for a new president in 2024. He'll change everything, or she, whoever it might be. And so we're always fickle. But we need to be reminded that we live in a polluted and sinful land. But we need to remember that our own hearts are polluted and vile. We need to pray for God's mercy. And so let us strive to have a greater knowledge, a greater understanding of the Lord our God. Let us look to the Lord Jesus Christ as the new Moses who turns aside the wrath of God and receives us even when we forget. Sometimes we get impatient when our children forget. But we as adults forget all the time of our duty toward God and our duty toward one another. So let this psalm move us to praise. Let this psalm stir us up we, like Israel, may not harden our hearts and turn from Him. Tonight, perhaps you've hardened your heart against the Lord. Perhaps you have that secret sin, that besetting sin that has controlled and dominated your life. And your, your heart is hardened toward God. Oh, do not let your heart be hardened. Plead for the mercy of God. Plead that the Lord would save you. Plead that the Lord would grant you His mercy. As we call to mind these things, let us pray and ask the Lord's mercy upon us that we too would not turn away. May we pray. O oh Lord our God, we do come before Thee and Declare that you are our God, that you are the God who is good and kind toward us, that you have shown us your mercy, that we have received great benefits from you. And we thank you for the goodness and kindness that you've shown to us in the Lord Jesus Christ. 
We thank you that he stands as our new Moses between us and you, reminding us that you will never destroy us. Lord, we would plead tonight for your mercies upon us. We confess, O Lord, with our fathers that we have sinned against thee, that we have provoked thee, that we have done wickedly. Even as a congregation, we have followed in unbelief like Israel. We have not trusted in you. We have not trusted in you by faith. Our prayer lives are cold. Our devotional lives are are cold and distant. Our hearts are far from you. We turn to the idols of our age. We turn to government and education and all of these things to solve our problems. And Lord, we cry out to Thee that as Your people we might turn from our sin, that we might love You with sincere and glad hearts. Save us, O Lord God. Gather us from among the heathen. We might give praise and glory unto Thee. O Lord, we need Thy mercy. We need Thy grace. We need Thy strength. And we pray that You would spare us from our sins. Remind us of our wickedness. Remind us of the depth of our depravity. But remind us of Thy goodness and mercy. For we give all glory, honor, and praise unto Thee. For it is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.